Good morning. That was right on time, wasn't it? <laughs> Yowza. It's real cold out there. It's real cold at North Campus. Uh, let's pray together. God of all there is and all that will ever be, open our hearts and our minds and our souls to hear the word that you have for each and every one of us this day. Amen. So my daughter, uh, one of my daughters yelled up the staircase, uh, Mom, you should come look and see what's outside. And the date, <clears throat> I remember quite clearly because it was six years ago exactly yesterday. And I was running around upstairs, clearly running late as always, uh, trying to get ready because it was my long-awaited, my God, I never thought this day would come, ordination day. Never thought I was gonna make it. I wanted to get there and get ordained because in the back of my head, I'm like, maybe this is a joke. Like, maybe I'll get there and they'll say no. Really just wanted to go. And then my other daughter said, no, mom, you really need to come down here and see what's outside. So I came running downstairs and they both looked at me with a little glimmer of some mid-level confusion and I started to laugh. And I was like, oh, no worries. The Magi is here. Like, it's Epiphany. They always show up. And there in my snowy front yard, 1795 Millwood Drive, were the three blow mold magi lit up in all their glory, one of them who had on a knit cap and a scarf. And they said, congratulations, Kate. No, it was not an Easter miracle that they appeared there. It was my good friend and sister in ministry, Deborah Lindsay, because the story of the Magi and Deb and I go way back. So when you're in seminary, there's kind of this trajectory, Jim, correct me if I'm wrong. You start out thinking, wow, I really don't know anything here and I never wanna be in a pulpit and Lord have mercy. And then you get to this place where you're like, dude, I know everything. <laughs> and I am going to theologically change the world with my knowledge. And so I think Deb and I were kind of at that point. And so we would sh um, share our sermons back and forth. And, you know, typically we were only preaching at the 8.30. If we preached up here, Lord, that was, you know, an all-nighter of going back and forth. Um, and it happened to be Epiphany. And so Deborah sent me her sermon. And my only comment back was, dude, throw him a bone. You cannot tell everyone on the planet that all of the story about the Magi didn't happen and there weren't really three and there weren't really this and blah, blah, blah. Just ease into it a little bit. And so our love of the Magi came from that. Because on Deb's ordination day, I put the three Magi in front of her door and it's been the same ever since. My ordination, they were there. And then when our dear friend retired from ministry, which I don't know if that's true if you're watching, we could have you back anytime. Um, they were at her going away party as well at North Campus. They are currently in my office if you'd like to see them ever. Plugged in, and one of them isn't working anymore, but whatever. So while the blow mold kings are clearly an amazing piece of art, they're also a really funny story for us to tell and a great memory, um, but they represent for me a long and sometimes very scary portion of my life's journey so far. 
And the reason is that um, they began, it began with this simple choice just to go, just to move in my life. And I really had no comprehension of what that journey was gonna be like or how I was gonna experience it or if I would ever finish, I just kinda jumped in. And I am not, I don't think that that is uh, something that is just clergy related, going to seminary. I feel like there are a lot of times in our lives and um, a lot of things that we feel like I don't really know where to go or I don't know if this is the right thing but I feel called in this direction or maybe you're just stuck and not knowing what to do next, or maybe really significantly trying to find what God's specific call on your life is. And either way, Epiphany for me, the Magi for me, are a yearly refreshment of my understanding of what a journey of revelation looks like, and how all of us might continue on our paths toward and with our still speaking God. So, it is true that the text doesn't say there are three magi. I'm sorry about that. And the only, gospel of, only the Gospel of Matthew says anything about them at all. And understandably, the Orient has 12 magi. Can you imagine how many times we'd have to plug that in, like the str- command strip of getting all 12 magi in both of our front yards? Suffice it to say that we know that at least two were on scene because they could have dialogue with each other there. And just like the multiple numbers of magi, there seems to be multiple theories by multiple commentators on who these folks really were. And so one is that they were magicians or frauds that practice a forbidden art of divination. And the other one was a class of coarsely priests serving the rulers of Persia, which is where they came from, traveling from Persia to Jerusalem. These priests had access to power and wielded the kinds of power appropriate to court retainers. And I like this. In this theory, Richard Horsley argues that the Magi also led a rebellion that attempted to end the rule of excessively cruel and arbitrary rulers. If so, he says, their presence in the story may carry overtones of subversion and change. And we know how the gospel likes that meta-narrative of subversion and powerful change. If you need receipts on that, read any story of a named woman in the gospel, and you'll read what the power of subversion and change looks like. The one I'm gonna expound on is that they were astrologers who read the heavens and advised rulers of their plans. And this could be precarious for those folks, right? Because if you didn't tell the rulers what they wanted or if that message were, was off, Sometimes I didn't like that so much. So if we work from the astrologer theory, as their presence places the star of Bethlehem in a different light. The star had been thought of as a celestial explosion, a comet. So Gentile astrologers coming to see would make sense of that experience. However, the star was really none of these. The star of Bethlehem wasn't so much an extraordinary celestial event, but an ordinary star seen through extraordinary eyes. An ordinary star seen through the extraordinary eyes of the Magi. Through the story, through Matthew's telling, we begin to see that they had eyes to see. We've heard that before, right? 
Do you have eyes to see and ears to hear? They had eyes to see. I love that image of clear-eyed, no agenda, people looking for a clear-eyed image of God, seeking truth. Dante says that God is the love that moves the stars. So you and I as sojourners on our own ways to find God are not star-crossed victims of fate, right? This newborn Jesus, this is our identity. What we can surmise of the Magi was that they were familiar with the power and the ruling system of the day, so they went straight to Jerusalem to Herod's court to ask directions. When I'm reading this, I think they must be kind of swanky because they just marched right on in and started asking the ruling elite and Herod. Herod, who was the one, as one commentator said, was great in his own mind. So while they didn't know Herod, potentially before they got there, they certainly learned the truth about who this Herod was from their interactions with him. From the outside, he may have put all, looked all put together. However, those he worked with, those who knew him best, and those who lived under his rule knew differently. They knew his position was never enough for him. He always hungered for more, and his appetite for power left him vulnerable to relationships, vulnerable in his leadership, and vulnerable in his life. Those who served him in his court, in his administration, knew he was prone to paranoia, which led to more and more extreme actions as he tried to secure the throne from all of those threats. Fear, right? He was afraid much of the time. And this is the chilling part for me. They knew that when he became afraid, when Herod became afraid, historically people died. So nobody wanted him to be afraid. One commentator states that the Magi were really lucky to get away after saying right to his face, where is the child who was born king of the Jews? We saw his star and came to pay him homage. (laughs) What? You don't come into my court and pay someone else homage. That's, That's to me and you called him a king. It was out of that fear that he called together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. Now remember that the chief priests were from the houses that supplied all the candidates for the high priesthood in Jerusalem, and the scribes were the folks that were supposedly the most learned that knew all of the laws and its interpretation. They were fancy. They were the fancy people in town. And when Herod inquired where the child had been born, the the scribes answered by quoting Micah 5, chapter 2, that pointed to Bethlehem of Judea, one of the smaller, less important clans. Interestingly enough, when the Magi's come and say, we came to search out the king of the Jews, and the scribes and the chief priests say, well, you probably find him in Bethlehem, right down the street, None of them really wanted to go investigate that. None of the, pro- the, the folks who were supposed to be the religious elite had any interest in God's activity in Bethlehem. They seemed unable to translate what they read into action. Most importantly, they lived at the center of power. So who really cared what was going on in the margins? 
I don't have to pay attention to that. Everybody comes to us. They weren't paralyzed uh, by, they were paralyzed by fear in Jerusalem um, and didn't really care about a small village that carried memories of a glorious past and had this new baby. So perceiving an opportunity to eliminate any other claimant to his throne, Herod tried to turn the Magi into his emissaries by secretly meeting with them. Again, if they were unaware of who he was before, they knew very well now. And they said, thank you very much for the information, and they went on their way. When the Magi arrived at what the text says, the place where the child was, they were overwhelmed with joy. Overwhelmed with joy. The text tells us they brought gifts we all know. What are those gifts? There are actually three of them. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? That is actually in the text. And there are lots of allegories about why they would bring those things. You know, gold is for priestly and blah, blah. But the one that I loved the best that I read last night was, could it be they simply brought what was precious to them? They simply brought what was precious, what they wanted Jesus to have? If you think about that for us, instead of constantly worrying about the best and the most expensive and what we think other people might want a a king to have, What if we just offered our best to God? What if we just offered what we wanted Jesus to have of us? What a gift that would be. Even more important than what they brought him is what they did in response to him. Excuse me, they knelt knelt down and paid him homage. In short, they believed in him. They believed. And after their offering and homage, they went home by another way, listening to their dreams and remembering their encounter with Herod and going in an opposite direction. And I wonder if that is what we are like when we meet God. We unfold a new map and discover an alternate path, don't we? T.S. Eliot imagined the thoughts of the Magi back home. He said, wow, we return to our places, but no longer are we at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods, Jesus does not make my life more comfortable. Let me say that again. Jesus does not make my life more comfortable. Jesus doesn't help me fit in and succeed. We're no longer at ease in a world not committed to Jesus. We detect royal pretenders. We detect royal pretenders. Nothing is the same anymore and nothing comes easy. A strange, unfamiliar road is now our path, but the road is going somewhere. It's going somewhere. Now, I wanted to figure out a way how to remember in my own head and offer to you this path of the Magi. How is it that we can explain how we too can be sojourners, how we too can be those Magi seeking God? And my old friend Papa Francisco, Pope Francis, who I love, wrote a lovely little homily on just such a thing that I think is important for today. And he said, in response to the story of Epiphany, and in response to the Magi, we can see the star, we can see the star, we can set out, 
and we can bring our, our gifts. We can see the star, we can set out, and we can bring our gifts. And perhaps, he says, because few people raise their eyes to heaven, we don't often see the star because we're too busy looking at the ground going somewhere. And he says, perhaps the star wasn't so eye-catching and it didn't shine any brighter than any other stars. It didn't dazzle or overwhelm, but it gently invited. We may ask ourselves what, char- what star we have chosen to follow in our lives. Some may be bright, but they don't point to any way. So the star of success or money or career or honors and pleasures, they're meteors. And they blaze momentarily, but then quickly burn out and their brilliance fades. They're shooting stars that mislead rather than lead. God's star, however, may not always overwhelm by its brightness and hear this, it is always there. It may not overwhelm with this brightness, but it's always present, ever kindly. It takes you by the hand in life and accompanies you. Takes you by the hand and accompanies you. It does not promise material reward, but ensures peace and grants us exceedingly great joy. See the star. And the next is set out, move, take a path. God's star demands a decision to take up the journey and to advance tirelessly on our way, to advance on our way. It demands that we free ourselves from useless burdens and unnecessary extras that prove a hindrance to us, accept the unforeseen obstacles along the map, the map of life. Jesus allows himself to be found by those who seek him, but to find him, we gotta get up and go. We gotta get up and go and not sit around, but take risks, not stand still, but set out. Jesus tells those who seek him to leave behind, I love this, the armchair of worldly comforts and the reassuring warmth of hearth and home. Following Jesus is not a polite etiquette to be observed, but a journey to be undertaken, a journey to be undertaken. In other words, if we want to find Jesus, we have to overcome our fear of taking risks. We need to take risks simply to meet a child. Yet those risks are immensely worth the effort for when we find God, we rediscover ourselves. The temptation of the priests and scribes is more subtle. Remember how I said they weren't interested in going to the margins? They weren't interested in following? They could quote a lot of scripture to you. They could tell you what it said, but they really weren't interested in doing anything else about that. Theirs can be the temptation of those who are used to being believers. They can talk at length about the faith they know so well, but will not take a personal risk for God. I like that. I like that. They talk but don't pray. They complain but do no good. The magi, on the other hand, talk little and journey much. Ignorant of the truths of faith. You hear what he's saying there? Ignorant of the truth of faith. 
the truths of faith, the doctrines, the laws, the this, you're in, I'm out, this and that. Ignorant of those, they're filled with longing and they set out looking for God. They set out looking for God. And they bring gifts. The gospel becomes real when the journey of life ends in giving, to give freely for God's sake, for God's sake without expecting anything in return. This is when we find Jesus. To do good without counting the cost, even when unasked, even when you gain nothing thereby, even if it is unpleasant, that is what God asks of us. He who becomes small for our sake asks us to offer something to the least of our brothers and sisters. And who are those people, you ask? They're the ones who have nothing to give in return. Nothing to give in return. The needy, the hungry, the stranger, the prisoner, the poor. We give a gift that's pleasing to God when we care for a sick person. When we spend time with a difficult person, help someone for the sake of helping, or forgive someone who has hurt us. These are gifts freely given and they cannot be lacking in the lives of those who follow Christ, of Christians. Today, let us look at our hands and let us try to think of some free gift, something we could give today without expecting anything and rediscover the joy of giving. So yesterday, I attended my friend Rachel's ordination. And I don't know if you've ever attended an ordination. A lot of you I see here were attended my ordination. It's a big fancy day and we get all dressed up and everybody wears red and it's a beautiful celebration. And on that day, yesterday, Epiphany, Rachel had also journeyed six years to get to that day. And so I brought her a set of magi that she could put on her desk so that she can always remember that that journey was worth it. That risk to just set out and go might have seemed super hard at times, but it got her to this point. And next year, I know this is on television, but don't tell her, I'm going to take the blow up magi that I have and I'm gonna plug them in her front yard. And I'm gonna hang three signs on them. One's gonna say, see the star, see the star. One's gonna say, set out, always set out. And the other's gonna say, remember to give your best gifts. Give your best gifts to God. Amen.